Our speaker is Dave Gibson, who has, uh, he's, this is now his third time to speak to us. Actually, I just met Dave three years ago when we first started, and uh, we've become good friends. He is uh, uh, an outdoorsman. He was with the Forest Service for a while. He has been a pastor and currently is um, uh, with East West Ministry. So he's in full-time ministry, a dear brother in the Lord. So, Dave, if you'll come up and give us a good word. Thank you, my friend. Are you wired up or you need a mic? I'm set. I'm set. set. Thank you. You need a... I don't think I need anything. You I need hope anything? not. You want the table or anything? Yeah, that's all good right there. Okay. Thank you. Okay, man. Thank you so much for a chance to speak here. I counted a privilege to be here for three years, and uh, the crowd has thinned out. The word got out that I was speaking, and this is a bad situation. But thanks for those of you who stayed. I appreciate it a great deal. Uh, we are the ones who have received the baton from uh, John Mazel and Gene Getz, us young guys, 65, 68, whatever. So we're, uh, we're going to carry the baton for those, for those guys who handed it to us, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I have two books to hawk tonight. This first one's called Life of the Beloved. It is a terrific book written by Andre Nowen. I read it about two days ago. I loved it. I have another copy at home. I'm leaving it right here for somebody who wants it. And uh, it is, the guy is a very insightful believer. Help yourself, Ben. The second book is called Travel Required. It's by an author named Dave Gibson. Brilliant, brilliant writing. Uh, unfortunately, the marketing guy has been miserable on it. And so it has sold tens of copies. So here, Rick. Thank you, my brother. Yeah, it sold a copy last week, by the way. So uh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're on a roll. It's two weeks in a row. So, <clears throat> I know a little about writing and, and zero about marketing, so I've applied my zero knowledge to the marketing of it, and it's going about like you would expect. So, um, friends, I'm going to tell you my story very briefly, and then uh, tell you God's story very briefly, then we're looking at a psalm together if we can. My story is this. I was raised in a mainline uh, Christian denomination, that denomination had two pieces of the message. One was the law, which is you have a sin problem. And one was the gospel, which is Jesus did something about it. For some reason, as a child, I only picked up the first half. You have a sin problem. I didn't understand the second half. It was not applied to me. And so about the age of 12, I became extremely anxious about my sin. I became afraid of God. I became afraid of dying. I was afraid of my dad, I was afraid of the dark, I was afraid of girls, I was afraid of snakes, I was afraid of high places, I was afraid of small tight places, I was afraid of the boogeyman in the closet. I was covered over with fear. I slept in the same bedroom with my brother for 19 years until we both went to college on the same day. And I listened to my brother sleep for hundreds of hours while I would lay awake anxious and afraid and watching to see if the curtain was going to move or if something was coming out from under the dresser. I was, a, I was a mess. At one point, I went to a lecture on the university campus where the speaker talked about the Antichrist and how he'd had a head injury and he'd come back to life. And I'd had a head injury in second grade and nearly died. And I decided maybe I was the Antichrist. <laughs> Crazy as it seems, I was afraid of that. Looking back uh, all these decades, I was truly mentally ill. My life was a mess from the ages of 12 to 19. I had no one to speak to. I had no one I would dare approach about all this. My life was an utter mess. 
When I was 19 years old, I went to a Bible study at the University of Arizona campus. Someone had written literally a handwritten Bible study on the Gospel of John. Picked up a handwritten Bible study on the Gospel of John, carried it home to my bedroom in northern Tucson, studied the passages, read the questions, answered the questions, and trusted Christ by myself in my bedroom in Tucson, Arizona. And everything changed. Now, I'm not going to tell you I got up the next morning, I was completely healed, but I got up the next morning and I was substantially healed. It just started getting better from, from day one. And my fears were, were gradually taken away, but steadily taken away. My fear of God went completely away. My entire life was turned around by that study that night out of that book called The Gospel of John in Tucson, Arizona, 1972. Now, friends, if I, I think if God had three minutes to speak to you, here's what he would say. Bad news, good news, invitation. The bad news is you have a sin problem. You have violated the standards of God, the character of God. I have done as well. We've said things we shouldn't. We've wanted things that don't belong to us. We've taken things that don't belong to us. We have harmed people. We've left stuff undone that we shouldn't have done. We have looked down the bank teller's blouse. We've done a lot of stuff we shouldn't have. We violated the character of God. The second part of the bad news is because of violating the character of God, the Bible says the penalty of sin is death. We're going to die physically, but we're also dead spiritually. The word death in the Bible means separation. When I die physically, my body will go on the ground and my soul will be separated somewhere else. But when I die spiritually, my soul is separated from the God of the universe by this massive canyon I'm a sinful being, and he is perfectly, incredibly righteous. He has never done, said, or thought one thing that violates his character. That's the bad news. The further bad news is I can't fix it. If I crawl on my knees to a mountain shrine in southern Mexico till the tendons are hanging out, it doesn't help. So here's the good news. The good news is Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. He had no sin of his own. He went up on the cross. He paid in our place. Substitution. If you don't understand substitution, you don't understand the Christian faith. I was supposed to die in that cross. I had my own sin. I got to the front of the line. There's 20 billion people behind me. It was my turn. And Jesus said, Dave, stand over here. And he went up and paid in my place. That's the good news. Now, here's the invitation. Every one of us needs to make a decision that says, I will put all of my trust in Jesus Christ. I will stop trusting in anything else, and I'll put all my hope in what he did on the cross. Friends, Hebrews 9 says that we're going to stand before God. We're going to stand before God in judgment. I believe we're going to be there by ourselves. There's going to be nobody to point a finger at. Unlike Adam, we're not going to be able to say, it was the woman you gave me, O oh Lord. It's just me. And God will say something like, Dave... Why should I forgive your sin and let you live in my heaven? I can give him any answer I want. I can say I gave money to an orphan. I'm better than my neighbor. I've done a lot of religious things. I go to church a lot. I've memorized some Bible verses. I can say whatever I want. And I have been re rehearsing my answer literally for decades. I hope yours is ready. Here's mine. Dave, why should I forgive your sin and let you live in my heaven? You should forgive my sin because Jesus already paid for it. 
and all of my hope is right there. And if he says, and what else, Dave? I'm going to say, I've got nothing else. He's my plan A. i got no plan B. All my eggs in this basket. And I'm convinced, friends, that God is calling every one of us to make a simple decision that says, I will trust in Jesus, and I will give up on everything else that I could be trusting in. Listen, friends, if God could save our souls by having us give money to an orphan, don't you think it'd be foolish to kill his boy? I mean, if there were some other way, if I could save all of your souls by killing my son or having you give money to an orphan, guess what I'm choosing? You better give money to an orphan because I want to take care of my boy. He's calling us to make a simple decision. that says, I believe Jesus died as my substitute. The Bible said God figured out a way to be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. He figured out a way to punish sin and to save our souls. And it was a brilliant thing he did. And he's calling every one of us to make that decision. I don't know if you have. If you haven't, I would love to speak to you. Speak to any of us uh, who've been speakers or any folks here that are regular high ground guys and would love to talk to you about that message of what's it mean to trust Christ. So, <clears throat> friends, I want to talk to you tonight about a specific psalm. And before we look at that psalm, we have to read another paragraph back in Exodus. So, uh, if you have a Bible, I wish you'd follow along. I'm going to start by reading a story in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. And then we're going to read a psalm that was written about this incident. So the psalms are worship songs that are about 3,000 years old. They were written to use in the worship of the temple uh, at the time of David and Solomon. So we're going to look at a 3,000-year-old song that was written about an event that happened even hundreds of years before that. Here's the event. Exodus 17, verse 1. People of Israel have left Egypt they have plundered Egypt, they've gone out into the desert, they've crossed the Red Sea, and now they need water. And it says in 17.1, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? That's a pretty interesting concept. If you're quarreling with God's appointed leader, you are testing the Lord. Now, I guess the question is, is this really God's appointed leader or not? But it should give us pause when we come after a, a, a pastor uh, in some kind of setting or a leader in another setting. Uh, so he said, why do, you, why do you test the Lord? Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said... Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile with, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah, which is a Hebrew word meaning test. And he also called it Meribah, which is a Hebrew word meaning quarrel. You have tested God, and you have quarreled with God, 
and that is what I'm going to name this place, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? How many times have we asked that question? God, are you really with me? Are you still walking with me? How could you let my child be sick? How could you let my grandchild die? How could you let my business go down? How could you let me be sued? How could you let my wife leave me? Leave me? Lord, are you with me or not? Is God with us or is he not? So with that said, please jump over with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a worship song sung in the temple of Israel about this incident. Here's what it says. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now at the end of verse 7, 7b, this whole psalm turns another direction. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. What a powerful statement. I loathed those people for four decades. And all I did was march them around the desert until every one of them had died. None of them are going into my land because I loathe them. My word, what a statement. And he said, he said, they are people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall never enter into my rest. Let me pray for us a moment, men. Father, thank you for recording so faithfully in your book these things that happened, these songs that were written. Thank you for recording so accurately and preserving over more than three millennia the stuff you wanted us to hear. Uh, let us not mock you by reading this old song and leaving here unchanged. Let us not mock you by reading your book and not taking it to our hearts and not saying, Holy Spirit of God, so what for my life? So what should I do? So to that end, Father, will you guide us tonight? Lord, I'm really clear. I've got nothing written on this paper that's of any help unless your spirit would work. It's extremely clear to me. And so will you work in my heart, in all of these hearts. We need your grace and help in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, I lived for about 16 years pretty close to Yellowstone Park. I visited there many times, love the features. It's a testimony of the greatness of God. Uh, what do you think is the most famous geyser in the entire world? Old Faithful. In fact, I don't think I even know the name of another Kaiser myself, but it uh, used to go off every 59 minutes like clockwork, and now it varies a little bit. But I was waiting one day to watch Old Faithful go off with a big crowd of people. There were probably 500 people on the seats. And I looked across the way as I waited for Old Faithful, and there was a couple who had their back to Old Faithful who were watching a 12-foot geyser. And this geyser was going off and going off and going off and going off. It's about 12 foot high, about twice as high as they were standing. 
And while they were watching the geyser, Old Faithful went off. Ooh, ah, 60, 90 feet in the air, 45, 50 seconds, 60 seconds of hot water going up in the air. The most famous geyser on the planet went off. And they were still watching the 12-foot geyser. Old Faithful died down. They never saw it. Their, their geyser died down. They turned and walked away. They never saw it. It's the problem of focus. It's the question of what are you looking at in the world? It's the question of what's the most compelling thing to you in the world? Is it the litany of brokenness that's the most compelling to you? Or is it the greatness of God? And I think, friends, we are in a constant fight about the question of what is the most compelling thing to me. Because here's the tension. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And 17 kids losing their life in a school in Florida, just that kind of stuff goes on and on. And the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the floods and the mothers who have a child and leave them in a dumpster and, and just the ugliness, the brokenness, the fallenness, is just, it's just coming over us like an avalanche. It's stunning. And it can become the, the focus of our life and we can get depressed and we can get addiction to the news and we can become people whose whole lives are defined by the brokenness. Or we could, by an act of discipline, let our lives be defined by a focus on the goodness of the person of God. Focus on who he is and what he's doing and what he's up to and, and look at this powerful God and say, what is supreme in my world? Is it the litany of bad news or is it this incredible God? Where will I focus? So Psalm 95, the psalm that we read, is a dichotomy of focus. It's really a primer on misplaced focus. It's really saying to us, where, where are you going to focus? You have a daily choice. And we're going to look at the second half first, and that's the focus on the fallenness of man, starting at verse 7b. And then we'll look at the first half, which is the focus on the goodness of God. And the psalmist says in verse 7b, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Massa and Meribah. And the message is God is a communicator. He's a speaker. He's talking. And I've got to pay attention to hear his voice. And if I do hear it, I've got to say to myself, will I harden my heart or will I soften my heart? When I hear the voice, those are the two choices that are set in front of me. Verse 8 Focused on the hardened heart and the fallenness of man, I have a choice to say, how will I respond to God and to events and to bad stuff, especially in my own life? I heard a speaker say one time, there's two kinds of clay. There's a kind of clay that when you put it in the oven, it gets brittle and hard. And there's another kind of clay when you put it in the oven, it gets soft and malleable. And the question for my heart is, what kind, of, what kind of heart have I got? When God's putting me in the oven... Is the outcome a more, a more malleable, submitted person or a more bitter and a more hardened person? When I hear his voice, when I see him at work in the world, what's happening with me? Verse 8, is my life focused on strife, testing, fist in the face of God, striving with God, saying, Lord, I've got this vision of what my life needs to be. I've got it all spelled out and you're not cooperating you're not cooperating, God, because I'm not somehow living into this dream that I set up that was going to make life good for me. Verse 8, succumbing to temptation, especially about the question of, is God good? 
especially about the question of does God care about me or has he brought me out here to die? <clears throat> Christian counselor named Larry Crabb one time said, our greatest temptation is to doubt the goodness of God. It's to say, do I really think God is good in the face of what's happening in my life? Now, friends, i got to tell you, I've had some rough things. I had, I had epilepsy as a child, and I had a father who wasn't uh, a great dad growing up, and uh, you know, I had some injuries and this and that. I've had some rough things, so my life's not been free of trouble. But in the scope of things, I would say my life is charmed. In the scope of things, my life is charmed. I'm an upper-middle-class American with good health and a wife who loves me greatly and three kids and three kid-in-laws and eight grandkids, and i got a great relationship with all of them, and I have two cars and a house that I can make the payment on. And I mean, my life is charmed. But when any little thing goes wrong, I've got this temptation to say, is God really good? Is God really with me here in this wilderness? Does God really care about me? Am I going to focus on the stuff that's gone wrong, or am I going to focus on the goodness of God? So I succumb to temptation, verse 8, and then there is the rebellion, and then there is the angry fist in the face of God that says, you are not cooperating with my plan. So friends, if I go to lunch tomorrow at the Smiling Moose, and I sit down and I've ordered my lunch, and a kid comes in who is a defensive tackle for Colorado State University, he weighs 280 pounds. He's 20 years old. He can bench press 400 pounds. He's quick as a cat. He has more testosterone than, than everybody in this room. He's angry. And he says to me, I want that chair. I have two options. Yes, sir. Can I get you a napkin also? You know, here's your chair. Or I can say, this is my chair. Let's take it out in the parking lot, punk. Let's take it out in the parking lot. What kind of a moron would ask a 280-pound, 20-year-old you know, kid to take it out in the parking lot? What kind of a moron would say to the God of the universe, let's take it out in the parking lot? Fist in the face of the God of the universe. He could vaporize me. He could stop thinking about me and I'd stop existing. And these people were rebelling. They were putting their fists in the face of the God of the universe when something hadn't gone their way. Verse 10, he says, they err in their hearts. It's always a heart issue, isn't it? It's always a heart issue. It's partly about if I show up for worship, but it's more than that, it's about my heart. It's partly about if I show up to share Christ, but it's more than that, it's about my heart. And then he says in verse 10, they don't know my ways. They don't see my ways. They don't know what I'm up to in the world. They don't understand the upside-down economy of God that the first or last, that the real source of joy is not in getting but in giving. They don't understand the upside-down economy of God. And not seeing the ways of God is rampant in our world. Unbelievers make an art form out of it. Let me give you an example. Go online and Google natural explanations for the ten plagues of Egypt. And you will hear some scientific exegesis and scientific gymnastics that will be extremely entertaining to you about how this all happened without God. They make an art form out of it. But the question is, do I as a believer, do I as a believer know the ways of God? Do I as a believer see what he's up to? Am I, am I clear about that in my own life? Am I focusing on the fallenness of God? Has this litany of bad news become supreme in my life? Now friends, I want to close this section by saying, I have a friend whom I love dearly. He's like a brother to me. 
he, over the course of 30 years, has gone from extremely humble, simple, compassionate, to incredibly cynical. Incredibly cynical. And I think part of what happened in my friend's life is that the, the, the fallenness became supreme. And he, got in, he just got captured by the stuff that didn't go right. So here's the characteristics of a cynical person who is habitually focused on brokenness, ignoring God. This comes from a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Best book I've ever personally read on prayer. I've not read every book on prayer. I haven't read a ton of books on prayer. But this one is extremely compelling. Paul Miller, A Praying Life. He says, here's the characteristics of a cynical person. They're questioning the goodness of God. They habitually see through everything. They're the one person who actually knows what's going on. They're distant and detached and aloof. They're deconstructionists. They know what's wrong with everything. They don't have a plan to fix anything, but they know what's wrong with everything. They see everything as phony. They're always looking for the angles and agendas and ulterior motives of everybody else. They're focused on fallenness. They have a minor or non-existent focus on God and His goodness. For them, everything is out of control. Very little is possible. They are without God and without a shepherd. In this everyday life, they are alone in a meaningless story. That's where, that's where you end up <clears throat> if brokenness is supreme. That's where you end up if the litany of bad news is more compelling to you than the goodness of God. And so he turns the corner and he goes now, number two, verses one to seven, he goes now to a focus on the goodness of God. And he says to them, let's rehearse a little bit about who God is. He's the rock of your salvation. Salvation is a word that literally means rescue. You're going down for the last time and he grabbed you. When I was five years old, I jumped in the wrong end of a swimming pool, and I couldn't swim. And I went down, and I was panicked, and I said to myself, when I get to the top, I'm going to scream. And I got to the top, and I went, <gasps> and I went down again, and I didn't scream. And I don't know how many times I went up and down, and I got some precious air every time I came up, but I never screamed. And after about, I don't know, the fifth, eighth, or tenth bob, the lifeguard walked over, and she kneeled on the edge of the pool. And she grabbed me and took me over here. I was that close to the edge of the pool. But guess what, friends? I was drowning. I was going to lose my life if this girl hadn't pulled me in. She rescued me. And the message of the very first verse of this psalm is, that's what God did for you. It's what he did for me. I was going down for the last time. It says, verse 2, he is the God who is present. He's here 100% of the time. But the question is, am I present to him? He's here, and he knows I'm here. He's here, but do I know he's here? Am I present to the person of God? Verse 3, he's the great God. He's the great king above all gods. He's the ultimate being. There's no one greater than him. He is sovereign. You don't know anybody like God. He's not Billy Graham without sin and with power. He's not even close. You don't know anybody like him. Verse 5, he's the creator and the sustainer of everything spoke the world into existence. Let there be planets, let there be stars, let there be the universe, let there be earth. Just by talking. Anybody tried to speak something into existence? Start with something easy like a rock or a gerbil. Start with something small, you know. Doesn't work. Let there be a gerbil. Doesn't work. God is a being who speaks and makes stuff exist. That's a stunning being. 
And Hebrews says that he is also a being who speaks to sustain things. If God doesn't keep willing us to exist, we stop existing. The theologians, philosophers say we are dependent beings. We are contingent beings. My existence is contingent on God willing me to exist. If God says, I don't want Dave to exist anymore, poof. This is the kind of being he is. He speaks into creation and he sustains it. He is also a being, verse 7, who shepherds us. He takes us through life in ways that we can't do for ourselves. We can't make it happen for ourselves. I went to Russia a couple years ago with a man named Chuck Schwartz. Chuck lived in Russia for 20 years. He's fluent in Russian. He loves all things Russian, politics, art, everything about Russia. He's brilliant when it comes to Russia. And Chuck, Chuck shepherded me for eight days through Russia. Showed me the Tretiakov Art Museum and the three greatest paintings of Russian history. Explained them all to me. Bought my, my train tickets because I had no idea how to get one. Took me to Red Square and showed me where Lenin was. Did everything for me. He just shepherded me through Russia. And I had a wonderful experience of Russia. Because I had a shepherd who knew what he was up to. This psalm says God is the shepherd who takes us through life. He's the God who speaks. He's the God who speaks incessantly. He's an incurable communicator. He talks to us in the creation, the prophets, the still small voice of the spirit, the written word, the incarnate word. He is an incurable communicator. Let me ask you, if everything were true that is true and God had not told us, what if it's true that I have a sin problem and God hadn't told me? What if it's true that Jesus paid for it and God hadn't told me? Oh my goodness, my friends, what a terrorizing situation. God is the one who speaks to us. Verse 7, he's the one who shepherds us, cares for us. We're the people of his hand. We're the sheep of his pasture. He's totally compassionate toward us. And if I get in touch with that, verse 2, here's what's going to happen. I'll be a person of joy. Not happiness, joy. A settled inner conviction of well-being. It is something available to me when I'm sitting in the hospital room and my child is on the edge of death. Who would be happy about that? No one. But there's still the settled inner conviction that God cares for me and for my child, and I have ultimately a sense of well-being. Here's the second thing that happens. Thanksgiving. Gratitude. Come into his courts with thanksgiving. Paul said to us, what do you have that you didn't receive? What is the answer, friends? Zero. Nothing. I have nothing that I did not receive. You know what I did? I stuck out my greasy palm and took it. I have life, I have health, I have a wife who loves me, I have income, I have savings, I have a car, I have a house. All I did was stick out my greasy palm and take it. Deuteronomy 18 says, God gives you the very ability to earn wealth. If you are wealthy, friends, it's not because you're smart or have a network or because you've worked hard or, or, or been more clever than the guy down the street. Now, friends, please don't hear me arguing against initiative. I'm a huge believer in initiative. But hear me saying, end of the day, what do you have that you haven't received? Nothing. All we did was stick out our greasy palm. If my wife buys me a brand new Ford pickup, uh, three-quarter ton, six-passenger, uh, four-wheel drive, leather seats, uh, gorgeous uh, four-speed, uh, first of all, if she buys that, we've got a real financial problem. But <laughs> if she did and she brings it home and she gives me the keys and she says, happy birthday, honey, where is the focus? Is it on the giver or is it on the guy who stuck out his greasy palm? It's on the giver. 
It's on the giver. God is the giver, and I'm the person who's demonstrating gratitude about that. And the sixth thing is, the, verse 6, is also worship. So joy, thanksgiving, and worship result. It's a heart-level response of adoration to the greatest being who could possibly exist. If you don't care about worship, it's because you don't understand who God is. I always cringe when someone says to me, Dave, when I see Jesus, I'm going to go straight up to him and say, why did my brother die so young? To which I say, I'm really sad your brother died young. But nobody's going up to Jesus to demand answers. We're all getting on our face just like everybody else. He's an incredible being. We sang a song today about the rainbows around him. He causes rooms to fill up to sm with smoke. He makes mountains shake. He makes grown men who are incredible number two people in, in nations shake and get on their face. He's an amazing being. You don't know anybody like him. He's holy. Holy. There are angels that fly around God for eternity and say one word. Holy. If you don't like repetition, don't go to heaven. I promise you. That's all, you, that's all they're going to say the whole eternity. He's that holy. I cannot get my mind around that. He's that holy. This is the kind of being that we worship. If you don't care about worship, it's because you don't know God. So, friends, the one focus, second half of the paragraph, fallenness of God, first focus, first half of the paragraph, the goodness of fallenness of man, goodness of God. But here's the gotcha. I glossed over a verse on purpose. Here's the gotcha. The gotcha is found in verse 9b. It says, they tested God though they had seen his work. They had already seen the plagues. They had already seen their families protected. They had already seen the Egyptians give them all their gold and all their silver without one shot fired. <laughs> they said to their neighbor, let me have all your valuables. Absolutely. They walked out of Egypt. They plundered the nation with their pockets full of gold. They saw that. They saw God split the Red Sea. They saw God drown Pharaoh and his army. They saw God provide food and water. They've already seen all this stuff. And they tested him, though they had seen him work. My question to you is, what have you already seen God do for you? I think you ought to buy a really fat notebook and just start answering that question. If you're just 30 years old, you already need a really fat notebook. Start with the fact that he rescued you from death and eternal punishment and just go from there. What have you already seen God do in the course of your life? Here's our options, friends. Focus on the fallenness and end up becoming cynical. Or focus on the goodness of God in the midst of the fallenness. Become joyful, become grateful, and become worshipful. That's our choices. About, I don't know, 1982, whatever years ago that was, I was raising support to go to Alaska to be a teacher at Alaska Bible College. And one of the things I needed to do that was not only monthly support, but I also needed a vehicle because I didn't have one. And so I put out on my prayer letter and said, we need a truck to move our family of four to Alaska in and pull a trailer. And a man that I knew who was a logger gave me, as a gift, a six-passenger, three-quarter ton, four-wheel drive, four-speed, 400 cubic inch, gorgeous maroon pickup. I owned that truck for 19 years. It was a gorgeous vehicle. We put a huge trailer behind it. We put all our belongings in it when we got ready to move. But before we were ready to move, in November, we had bought tickets for the boat to leave out of Seattle on the boat. We had to buy them because there were tickets were being bought up. 
and we didn't have all our support yet, and it was coming down to the wire, and I was getting very scared. There was 204 bucks left. I remember it to this day. Still need 204 bucks. I'm driving this pickup down Camp Wisdom Road, Duncanville, Texas. I came to a stoplight. I stopped. I'm feeling anxious about this 204 bucks, and I start hitting the steering wheel and saying, God, it's too late. You have waited too long. I am beating on the steering wheel of the truck he just gave me and saying, God, it's too late. I had seen him work, and I still tested him. I'll finish the story by saying the guy who gave me the truck called me six days before we had to get on the boat and said, Dave, we're going to pick up the rest of your support. I said, Earl, you don't even know what it is. He said, it doesn't matter. God told me to pick it up. And Earl supported us 204 bucks a month for the next four years. But the point of my story is I had already seen God work. I mean, I only had the truck two months, and I'm beating on the steering wheel saying, God, it's too late. What have you already seen God do? And therefore, would you be willing to say, he'll keep it up. He'll keep it up. I want to focus on him. I want to be a person of joy and gratitude and worship. And I don't want to keep being enamored with the fallenness and become a person of cynicism. Let me pray for us. Father, we're really grateful for what you've already done. Lord, what you've done for us would fill a big book, and we thank you. Thank you especially for what you did for us in Christ. Father, I still remember the terror of not knowing Christ. I give you praise. I give you praise that I don't live there anymore. I pray for each one of us that we would, by the power of your Spirit, focus on your goodness be truthful about the brokenness, but not be enamored with it. Father, we declare tonight that you are supreme. It's not the litany of brokenness that is supreme. It is you. We praise you in Christ's name.